Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected. On behalf of Team Krulak, we're happy to be here with you at Imgen Barracks in the vicinity of Gloucester, which is the home of the Allied Rapid Reaction Corps, where we've been spending the last couple of days doing some wargaming training with the staff here. And I'm happy to uh, sit down with some other of the staff members and who we've been interacting with and learn more about what they do here at the ARC, what is the ARC, uh, what is its functional role inside NATO, and then talk about some of the exciting things that have been going on over here in terms of wargaming, specifically with the UK Fight Club, uh, which is an organization trying to expand the use of wargaming as a professional development tool within the uh, British military. So I'm sitting here right now with uh, First Stop Major Julian Epps, who's with the Royal Marines, and he's here and the ARC as uh, G5 Planning Coordinator, which is an XO type role. We also have Major Edward Farron, who is with the 1st Battalion Royal Regiment of Fusiliers, and he is in company command of their fire support company, which for us on the U.S. side is roughly equivalent to the weapons company, and he is a co-founder of the UK Fight Club. We have Captain Andrew Elliott, who is with the 5th Battalion of the Royal Regiment of Fusiliers, which is a reserve battalion. And in his, uh, his day job, he is an operational analyst for the Defense Science Technology Laboratory, or Laboratory, or uh, DSTL for short, which is a sort of fusion for those familiar on the U.S. side with the U.S. Army's Center for Army Analysis, as well as the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, or DARPA. And he's also a co-founder of the UK Fight Club. Happy to sit down here and talk with Major Pace Dean, United States Army. So, gentlemen, appreciate you taking some time out of the at the end of the day here to come and talk to us and help our community of interest learn more about both the ARC and what uh, what's going on here with Wargaming in the United Kingdom. So, first off, I'd like if, if you could all just kind of uh, expand on your, your military backgrounds and sort of what brought you here to this place in time. Um, Major Apps, if you want to start with you. Yeah, sure. So, uh, uh, I'm a Royal Marines officer. Um, I've done almost 20 years. Um, done the fairly standard uh, Iraq and Afghanistan tours, working with indigenous forces, and I've done a couple of, um, of counter-piracy tours. I spent a lot of time on staff, uh, particularly in our joint headquarters, um, looking at what would be CENTCOM's area of, uh, of interest, uh, so Middle East type stuff. Uh, and I'm in the ARC largely by accident, um, having left, rejoined because of um, the new national emergency of COVID, having done some planning for the government uh, around that, um, but then I had the rest of my contract to serve out, so uh, the ARC was geographically convenient, and that's why I'm here. Okay, great. Um, Major Farron. Yeah, hi, thanks. Um, I suppose I'm a, I'm a bit of your typical uh, British lifer. I first got interested in the Army when I was uh, in cadets at school. Uh, then I was in the um, University Officer Training Corps at university, which equates roughly to your ROTC. I was then in the reserves, um, much like Andrew, and then uh, finally uh, bit the bullet and went to uh, the regular army where I uh, commissioned the infantry branch. I'm a light role infantryman by background, so my current posting with armour is the first time I've actually uh, been involved in armour platforms in my career. Uh, I share with Andrew a, um, a master's from King's College London where we did a module in conflict simulation, as it was called, under Professor Phil Sabin, and that's first where we really got a touch of the uh, professional side of wargaming, having done some hobbyist stuff uh, before that. I spent a significant amount of time uh, at regimental duty. I only got one operational tour under my belt with indigenous forces in uh, Afghanistan before the fall. And uh, other than that, it's been the usual rotation of staff jobs, um, culminating recently in ICSCL 
in Schwedland. Okay. Thank you. And then, Captain Elliot, if you can give us sort of your military background, but maybe also expand a little bit about what what you do at the uh, at DSTL and sort of what DSTL um, focuses on. Perfect. Thank you. So, um, obviously, a very limited military career commissioned back in 2016. Um, and like Ed, I joined a, a light roll infantry unit, albeit with the reserves. Um, and I've only really done a number of AT, um, overseas training exercises, ATXs. Um, and to be honest, military experience in terms of on the day job is limited. But where my experience really sits is within the Defence defense Science Technology Laboratory. Um, and I actually am a, what was originally called a tactical operational wargamer. So focused very much on analytical wargaming at the tactical and operational level. Um, I'm now one of the wargaming team leads, um, but I'm also, and, and you volunteer for this, uh, a deployable operational analyst. So my role is to go into different headquarters from the tactical up, up to the strategic level and support them with decision making. Um, and that's something that DSTL has as a, as a capability. It supports with um, scientific and analytical advice. Um, and this is during op current operations, but also looking out to the future. So it's, a, as I said, a bit of a mix of DARPA um, and, and Centre for Army Analysis. We, we look very futures focused, but also we can support current world operations, um, essentially with scientific advice. Okay, great. Thank you very much. And I'm, if we have time, I might want to dig more into what it was like to be in um, Philip Saban's class because I've, I've heard the name and I've got the book in my bookshelf. <laughs> um, but uh, only sort of by reputation do I know him. Um, like you said, I'm major in the U.S. Army. Uh, I'm a functional area 49, also known as an ORSA, an Operations Research Systems Analyst. Brings me here to the ARC is there's a, we, a branch here called the Operational Analysis and Research Branch, which um, has luckily one position for an FA-49 U.S. Army. So I'm the sole operational analyst uh, in, in the headquarters within that branch um, on any given day, on a daily basis. First off, uh, the Allied Rapid Reaction Corps, uh, which is a, a NATO entity here. And um, be honest, like when uh, we, I, myself, when I first got told that uh, Colonel Barrick, our Wargaming Director at MCU, was coming over here to do a series of operational wargame system stuff for the for the ARC. Had heard of about it before, so I think um, probably the first question to ask. I think Julian, this is more to you to, but gentlemen, feel free to chime in as well. What is the Allied Rapid Reaction Corps? What is um, sort of what was its origin? Um, what is its functional role inside NATO? Yeah, so um, so the ARC is is an unusual organisation in many respects, it, as as the title suggests. It's the Allied Rapid Reaction Corps, and it originally was based in Germany um, as a three-star warfighting corps that could be stood up um, to fight uh, in in a Cold War scenario. Um, a number of years ago, it was brought back to UK as UK Army withdrew from Europe and Europe basing, uh, which is how we came to Gloucester, um, and we have been a readiness three-star headquarters. Now, the NATO cycle for three-star HQs uh, is such that it uh, rotates through the low tactical warfighting three-star core level up to being an LCC uh, and even a, a JFC organisation. So NATO has a cycle of readiness for its deployable headquarters. So those are its, the, the headquarters which aren't standing commitments. Where the ARC is positioned recently has been at that uh, tactical level of warfighting corps. So the UK doesn't actually have a core headquarters, but the ARC is the UK uh, framework nation headquarters. So it's mostly Brits, uh, a number of Americans, Italians, 
Uh, I couldn't hazard a guess, but it, we're at least 18 NATO nations included here. Um, and we are a force at readiness that will take command of uh, uh, divisions allocated to us by SACUR, uh, ready to effectively come as a follow-on force rather than a standing or contingency force. The kind of things we look at, um, as with any headquarters which is currently without portfolio, we have teams who go and support all sorts of planning activity across the board, um, across NATO, uh, with a Europe focus. Uh, and as NATO is sort of divided up really into um, high north, uh, northeast, and southeast, uh, we uh, have a remit to support um, each of those with any potential um, planning activities. NATO has a number of number of contingency plans, uh, readiness plans, graduate response plans that we also contribute to. So. From a, a planning perspective, lots of um, lots of thumbs and lots of pies, um, so that we are prepared to work wherever we're deployed and wherever secure ultimately would say, go here, take command of these forces. Um, we're just one of those forces that are ready to go. Okay, and then so uh, what's sort of been some of the focuses of effort recently? I, I would imagine that for in Ukraine right now has probably been a focus effort, um, but I mean, so maybe with that or any other things that. Have been of uh, particular importance recently. Yeah, so so uh, if you'd asked this question six months ago, it, it would have been a toss up between the high north, uh, by which we mean Scandinavia, Norway, mm-hmm. um, which uh, as a marine of particular interest, and, and our previous commanding general, uh, as a, a keen telemark skier, was very interested in, um, or the Sawaki Gap um, in Poland, um, Ukraine, uh, inevitably generated a lot of interest uh, immediately. Um, but without direction to do anything, uh, we're always hamstrung. And this is a, a NATOism that, if you're not directed, um, you can do prudent military thinking, but prudent military planning has to be directed. So um, the things we've been looking at remain the Baltics, uh, Swaki Gap, um, and, and Ukraine is of interest. But I think there's an assumption there that uh, Uncle Sam will lead the way if there is uh, uh, an allied response. Yeah, and obviously there's... Uh been some pretty clear lines drawn about where and where and where not NATO is going to go into Ukraine, particularly. Although if things spill over into other countries, then that changes the calculus. But yeah, absolutely. And we've we've been supporting uh, some of the uh, multinational um, core organisations um, as the Romanians have been standing up to be effectively a, a sub theatre command. We've been supporting them in how they wish to do it um, and what some of the pitfalls are. Um, and just lending experience of being an at-readiness headquarters to a new organisation that's been stood up in response to, well, it's not in response to Ukraine, it's been accelerated in response to Ukraine mm-hmm. activity. Yeah. And so, so how does the operational analysis research branch support the overall mission of the ARP? So, also known as OARB, we essentially serve as a standalone or um, a objective organization to assist the commander in, in decision making we we have the luxury of not of being able to report directly to the commander so that we don't have any sort of outside or undue influence in, in any of the analysis we do we we have an objective approach for any any problem that the headquarters might have and and can assist analytically in, in identifying those problems and answering them Thank you. Um, so I want to kind of shift into uh, what we've been focusing on here, particularly the last couple of days, and, and will in the uh, tomorrow at least. 
we've been here to uh, to to do some professional development as well as staff training uh, uh, using wargaming as a tool uh, for the staff here. So, um, what's been the uh, the role, or, or how has ARC been using wargaming to to improve its its staff functions, its understanding of the battle space, um, and so forth? Some of the problems that we we are asked to assist in are course of action analysis or any traditional um, uses of a, a war game. So wargaming is a tool. What, we, what we've also identified in, in the recent past is the utility of wargaming and trying to identify when we should use it and how we should use it to, to include using it earlier in, in the planning process. Um, and as well as how do we wargame better so that we can identify harder problems earlier. This all came about through a project called Project Prometheus within the, the headquarters, where members of staff were kind of brought together to, to work on this project of, of how do we figure out how the staff answers hard questions better and faster um, to, to buy back time for the subordinate units and inform the commander earlier as well for his decision-making process. And part of that was wargaming and the implementation of wargaming. So because ARC's the only three-star deployable headquarters that, that is UK-sponsored, if you will, um, we have a fairly broad remit. Um, and one of the things that we've been directed to do is experimentation um, uh, and innovation. So we're in tune, effectively, there's three lines of effort uh, under Project Prometheus. Um, which uh, is headed up by a U.S. Uh, soft colonel, um, David, um, Arnel David, where we're looking at innovation using technology, um, using uh, um, innovative thinking, um, and speeding up processes. So we've had, this week, we've had two particular tracks. One, bringing in some new technology to assist in our orders production from uh, the estimate process. And then the second track has been using wargaming uh, to test plans, develop plans, develop our understanding of the environment, of the capabilities, uh, and frankly of our, our, our allies and partners and our own staff in terms of risk appetite uh, and people's focus of interest. So the, the two things have, have meshed together into uh, a week-long experimentation and innovation uh, um, uh, exercise. Okay. So in that research, we identified a new wargaming system, which the operational wargaming system. And so I, I know, I don't think this is the, the, the first or the very first time um, that it's been used here, but so um, what, uh, what system was used in the past um, and you know, what was it about the operational wargame system that made it more attractive for use today and in the future? So in the past, uh, we would use kind of a generic process of taking a course of action, looking at a map using a, a box method, um, and kind of using military judgments. Some might call it a bog set or a bunch of guys sitting around a table, yeah. um, opining on, on the outcomes of, of certain events. Included in that, we had analytic tools that were essentially correlation of forces and means to determine force ratios and outcomes of, of direct conflict engagements. But what it didn't do is account for other elements and aspects of, of combat, which the 
Operation Wargaming system does account for systematically, um, which makes it a, holistically a, a better approach to to wargaming. Okay. And is the intent to, uh, sort of starting with the operational wargame system, to look at expanding to a variety of wargames, depending on the, I guess, the decision that needs assistance in making? Um, or or is, is the plan that, that developed yet? Uh, absolutely. So the intent is to bring in and apply it to each each planning branch across the staff um, for for problems that they may have. Be it logistics, we can we can have a logistics specific kind of war game um, if if need be. Um, the other the other plan is to conduct war games more often and less formal as well across the staff. Um, so with that, I want to kind of transition into um, one of the other unique things that we came here to, to learn a bit more about, which was is the UK Fight Club, which uh, seems to be a kind of a, a fusion of formalized, you know, formalized professional development, as well as trying to generate informally uh, better military thinking and understanding. So um, before we get into the UK Fight Club, maybe if we could look at before the UK Fight Club stood up, like what was sort of the, the role, the perception, the use or, or lack thereof of wargaming as a military development tool for, for all of you gentlemen? Do you want me to start? You start. Jump in. Okay, so <clears throat> the, the military has a long history with wargaming, but largely it is based on the co-analysis method, which is largely based on talking through a plan and using the adjudication of uh, an experienced staff officer, the chief of staff, or sometimes the commander, um, to stress test the plan and make improvements. And that is, um, by definition, part of the, the, the large um, spectrum of what Wargaming is, but it is uh, a shadow when compared to mm -hmm. the other varieties that exist. Um, we also use Wargaming in the simulations, and in the sort of computerized simulation sense, when we do some of our command and staff training. Um, or our combined arms tactical trainer, um, but people don't often see that as wargaming because they're more hands-on and the uh, adjudication and the mechanics are all hidden from them behind the screen, um, whether they be computerized or umpire controlled. Certainly at unit level, there is, I would say, next to zero wargaming um, in, the, in the purest sense. And, and that also leads into the inevitable discussion on culture and the resistance to wargaming because of its um, linked to hobbyist wargaming, miniature wargaming, and Warhammer and, and, and the inevitable Nerd Knight sort of comment, which is all something that UK Fight Club is trying to reverse by showing how um, professionally satisfying, fun, and exciting, because you can explore new concepts and, and, and different stuff, and as a junior officer, get your hands on um, things that you wouldn't normally get into, get into the sort of jobs that Colonel Arnell's in uh, now. So that, that sort of set the baseline, I'll, I'll let the other two jump in. I think from a, a UK perspective, DSL, we, we have a whole wargaming, uh, well, now a wargaming centre, which mm -hmm. is the Defence Wargaming Centre for the UK. We have now expanded to a number of wargaming teams. Um, but we talk about the triad of wargaming. You have decision support wargaming. You've got analytical wargaming and training and education wargaming. So Ed's covered off on a bit of training and education, cat and cast. 
Um, Coa Wargaming really sits within decision support and what the type of wargaming we generally do at DSTL is analytical wargaming. It's focused at future problems or current problems and we try and um, use wargaming as a method, one of many methods, um, to look at exploring potential um, outcomes and, and plausible um, possibilities and, and things that we could do to maybe shape those outcomes. Um, I think that culturally within our organisation, wargaming is is accepted in some fields and they're not seen as rigorous in others so they prefer say simulation mm -hmm. um, as opposed to wargaming which is about the difference for me as players and their decisions they make um, and I think that what we tried to do to transition into talking about UK Fight Club was take some of the best practices that we saw on the analytical side um, where we see really good um, you know, analysts that understand the games that can develop and design games, but bring them to a kind of a military setting in decision support wargaming, which as Ed's explained is very much at the moment just co focused, co wargaming focused. Um, and I think that what we saw on my side, there's a problem that we lack the military experience, the military judgment, but they, they make really good analytical games and, and they can make some decisions. But what we need actually is that military experience and that um, kind of military judgment fused with this analytical understanding to make the best kind of wargaming we think to support all three types of wargaming. Um, and that's certainly from my very biased perspective, how we felt that, you know, there was a need for UK Fight Club because it was changing the culture about building professional military understanding within our analyst community, but also about, you know, reducing the nerd factor for say the professional military organization and, and making it, you know, less about Warhammer and more about professional military education. But no, Japs, if you... Yeah, so so um, Andrew and Ed, as, as founder members of Fight Club, had clearly had a vision. Uh, I, I came to it later, um, simply by virtue of working for Colonel Arnell. Um, but uh, to react to to echo what was said when I was on staff college, uh, the two star general stood up and asked the uh, the auditorium, "Who here does wargaming?" And nobody put their hand up. Uh, and I confess that I kept my hand down. Um, but looking around, that was the smart money. But I knew there was at least a dozen people in there who did war game, and even though the two star said who war games, and nobody put their hand up, and then he said, "Well, you all should." Uh, there is that that resistance um, to it. So coming here to Ark and uh, the, the the full colonel saying, "Right, we're doing some war gaming, and here's this thing, Fight Club, and are you interested?" Um, had I said no, that would have been no no problem at all. But I said, "Yes, I am actually." And we got into it, and and you know, there's a there's a bottom up approach here of who's enthusiastic, who's engaged, who's slightly shameless, because actually, once you break through that initial reticence, um, I bet I bet at least fifty percent of your listeners will be war gamers of some form or other. How many of them have put their hand up to it in public? Who knows? Well, I I like maybe I'm I'm overestimating, but uh, you know we've. At least in our little corner of the educational enterprise, you know, we've been trying to get more people to put their hands up or at least get more people to know that, like, it, putting your hand up is an option, you know, maybe if not now, maybe down the road. <laughs> if, um, I, if I may just jump in there, and one of the things that I was, I was actually saying to Julian earlier was that the U.S. Marine Corps have been a great um, uh, portrait to hold up to our side of the fence where often wargaming is decried as uh, sort of not part of the warrior ethos, a bit of feet, nerdy, not what you know, grown men should be doing who are warfighters and then I show them a picture of a devil dog playing chess or a, um, a memoir 44 or doing that sort of stuff and it kind of takes the wind out of their sails so a big thank you to, to the US Marine Corps for sort of leading the way as ever in, in this sort of stuff yeah well we, we, we do our best but I don't, I don't want to oversell <laughs> it because I uh, actually I think it was last year 
myself and one of our wargaming non-resident fellows, we wrote a, an article for the Journal of Advanced Military Studies under the MCU Press about the history of Marine Corps wargaming. And as with sort of so many, you know, innovative ideas in the military, it, it ebbed and flowed. You know, there, there were times in the past, you know, past decades, and we're talking about uh, Brendan McBreen here and John Schmidt and some other folks before we started recording. You know, there's uh, there was sort of a golden age, I think, in the, call it the 80s into the 90s, maybe, when, uh, when yeah, there was a lot of wargaming going on around the Marine Corps. Marine Corps even had its own formal game called Tac War, which uh, I, uh, I never saw a copy of because we didn't use it anymore, at least when I came in. So anyway, it ebbs and flows. But what we seem to be at, uh, you know, heading in an upward tick. So I'm glad that, um, that at least that trajectory is, um, is, is providing opportunities for others to do it. Although um, I want to get into more sort of the formal structure of the Fight Club here because one of the things that we don't really have formalized is a, uh, I, let's say, it's sort of contradictory, but we don't have a formal informal group or organization where people can plug into across the Marine Corps um, and, and do more of it on their own. So from that, uh, that initial idea, um, you know, that uh, Colonel DeVee came in and, and sort of pitched, how did you take that and turn it into this thing where you have an organization now, you've got, you've got a logo, you've got a charter, you've got a framework, and you, you've even developed your own actual game. So, yeah, so this is definitely a plane built in flight. And if we were doing it again, we would probably do some things uh, differently. Um, the first thing to say is this is all largely done volunteer-wise in the hours between your day job finishing and your day job starting. Mm -hmm. So it competes with family, uh, additional PT time, anything else you've got going on. And it's largely subject to the, uh, to the whims of, uh, of life. COVID was a great supercharger in that respect because uh, a lot of the things that you could do outside of your day job disappeared. Mm -hmm. um, but we should be clear that Fight Club is not just a sort of virtual online thing that only happens when you're not, not working. You're trying to move beyond that. Um, so creating a digital space, um, we have a Slack channel, website, um, an ability to sign up and screen memberships so we get the right people who we're genuinely interested in, uh, somewhere to, to communicate, um, to share ideas. Um, we use Zoom, um, we did uh, created a webinar uh, series just to have a regular drumbeat of conversation touch points which were then recorded and pushed out. Um, we didn't get our first physical event until a good way through and although it wasn't massively attended because we were still under restrictions at the time, um, that is the sort of thing we want to do, a mixture of, of, of live concentrations, uh, often which just connects people who've been talking um, digitally already, uh, but then starts generating ideas and plans for other events, uh, and then a, a constant sort of background of, of, of digital connections. Every week we get about five to ten new members uh, who come in. A lot of them are just on a listing watch and waiting for their niche thing uh, to come in. If you're interested in a cyber wargaming, for example, 90% of what goes on in Fight Club is probably not going to interest you, but that 10% that where you find 10 other people who are interested in cyber wargaming, you could probably collaborate and make a game or play an existing game or, or share ideas. And, and that's the sort of power of it is connecting people um, without real agenda or uh, specificity so they can decide what they want to do inside the safe space. Which also means we want to keep kind of work out of it. We don't want a two-star, a one-star CEO coming in and saying, you must do this for me now. And, and we, we sometimes do have to push back against those overzealous senior leaders who want to task Fight Club to do something for them 
because that is not really what the membership wants to do. We don't want to come in our, in our evenings and run an event for a, for a unit. We, we want that unit to learn how to run an event for itself. And there is that tension we're going from the enthusiastic people who want to war game and then trying to expand it into the, the sort of faithless, as it were, to show them that it's good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the game that you mentioned, Take That Hill, is one of the mechanisms to do that, specifically designed to be played by the layman, uh, i.e. a non-war gamer, by just reading the rules. Unlike the classic one where you need an umpire or facilitator to come in and set it up and run it for you. And Colonel Tim's use of the operational war game system is a, is a great example. Fascinatingly detailed and um, you know high fidelity game. But I could not run that on my own and I, I think others would struggle without significant training time. So the idea is to get people interested in, in wargaming, basic game, something familiar, a light roll attack on a, on a, on a defensive position. Uh, and you read the rules and you then make the game mechanisms work uh, and it's solitaire, so you don't even need a partner because that is also sometimes a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's one way we're trying to sort of expand the uh, the, the sort of interest in wargaming um, without having to train people formally in wargaming, which is which is often a struggle. Yeah, so I, I do want to come back to the game and its development here in a little bit, but if to kind of continue along that path of what you know the UK Flight Club is trying to do, um, getting other people to do it on their own it seems to be part of the division overall but like what is what is your hope your your sort of um your dream for what the uk fight club act you know what what impact it has so i think so we i've got a clear goal and the good thing about uk fight club and i think ed says built in flight is also a bit about what you put into it so i think we've got a we've got some good ideas and we started out there's a game called combat mission which i'm hoping some of the listeners may be familiar with um, my dissertation actually looked at it. So when I was um, doing the masters that King's mentioned earlier in war studies, uh, I focused on comparing combat mission with another game, War Game Red Dragon, um, and we basically said, is this suitable for professional military, you know, war gaming? And ultimately, the decision we said was yes. Um, and then actually at our organisation at DSTL, we worked directly with the developer, which is Battlefront.com, um, and we started saying to them, hey, this game's really good, but we would like to make a few minor changes just to make it more usable for, for our community, for the analytical community. Um, and we were able to work with them directly, uh, and later we've now also worked with the publisher, which is Slithering uh, Matrix Games, um, and what we, we did there was essentially use it as an analytical tool. But the hope and the vision to get back to what we do with Fight Club is to make it not just a niche tool that's used within one analytical community, it was kind of to expand it out. So during the, the lockdown, one of the things that we also did was we created what we term a campaign of learning. And this is a way to introduce a professional military audience to a, to a computer game in their own time. So we, we built a series of five missions that were linked together. Um, and these, these were fictional scenarios set in Combat Mission Shock Force 2, which is a base game anyone can buy. And we bought some licenses to start with, gave it away for free, gave it to our community. And then what we did was we gave them the campaign with it, say, play this. Um, and it's clearly a fictional scenario mm-hmm. because in the scenario it's set in Syria and the Brits come to the rescue of the Americans. So that's how you know it's fictional. <laughs> um, and, and the point here was that you played this through, but we designed them with, you know, we spoke to um, current military officers. There was a, you know, there's a set of plans, there's a set of orders. Um, it's not, you know, like a game to be played just for fun. It's to introduce you to the tool. Um, and the key thing for us to maybe build off that, and this is not just with this one tool, we're not tied just to combat mission. It just happens to be one of the games we're using. Um, but we've also now expanded to combat mission professional edition. And the really important aspect of, professional edition is you can export the results and these results actually each game generates say 40,000 lines in a CSV file 
every move you make, every action and kind of counteraction is recorded um, down to kind of the morale of the troops. And what we're able to do with that is actually analyze people's performance, so how good they are potentially tactically by seeing the outcome. Um, and we can also make changes, like you can change your orb app, you could change your sport weapons company, the mix of weapons you've got in there, and see the output it, uh, and impact it has on a mission. Um, and all I'd say in terms of you know the goal for Fight Club is yes, we want to change culture, we want to this have you know use it as a tool. But one of the key things we're also hoping to be able to do maybe is encourage a bit of more decentralized wargaming. And for us as an analytical community, more centralized analysis. So we want to see the whole set of the UK military, not just the army, um, using wargaming tools, whether it be combat mission, other tools. Um, playing games in their spare time, and then maybe having these results stored somewhere in a centralized repository, online preferably, and then being analyzed and looked at. Because what we're, you know, Arnel's favorite line is he's looking to find Ender. We're also mm -hmm. looking to find Ender, but we're also trying to maybe look at the future, you know, force structures. And, and one of the missions we're about to release, so it's probably a bit of a new flash for us, is within the next couple of weeks, we're about to give out 50 more licenses and we're about to release a series of missions inside Combat Mission where you can play the old Orbat, which is Warrior. And for those that don't know, Warrior is an infantry fighting vehicle that the British Army's just started to divest in, but it will be replaced by a Boxer, which is a wheeled APC. Um, and what we're looking to do is give that to units who, who are there, like um, the 1st bat Battalion, um, Ed's, Ed's unit, um, and say, look, play this mission with Warrior. That's how you fight it. You know the doctrine. Why don't you fight this mission again? Here's boxers and start seeing how you fight it differently because they do have fundamentally very different capabilities. Um, so, sorry, it's a long conversation as to why, but that's a very focused from our side. But head, head, hand over to Ed and Japs to talk about it from their perspectives. Uh, I'd just re-emphasise that there was no sort of plan when we first started. It was, again, community of the willing and, and see where it goes. Um, if, if you were to imagine a sort of uh, a three-layer triangle, I'd say the first level is to, the broadest basis, to get more people wargaming. And we're less kind of worried at the quality or professional out, output of that because it's just exposing people to it, making it safe, enjoyable, uh, getting them used to it. And then the next layer above that is is increasing the sort of quality, accuracy, and and, and output of those games, probably into um, the sort of co-decision or or training for specific tactical purposes. And then at the top, it would be um, only the best and brightest who get it into the sort of analytical and, and sort of concept space. Um, there is evidence out there, um, again from the US sources, that uh, war gamers make better uh, planners in the sense they understand symbology. Uh, movement, um, combat, sort of mechanics. Uh, I mean, outside of a war game sense, because they're used to that kind of way of thinking, um, and that that's sort of the ideology we use. That uh, there are there are tangential benefits outside of actually playing war games from from being a war game and the way it reworks uh, your mind, and certainly making decisions quickly under pressure, which links to sort of the tactical decision game aspect, which is another aspect we're we're trying to pursue. Yeah. So, so, so I would just add that from, from the blunt marine of uh, as, as somebody who joined it not from the inception and, and has come in and, and taken the virtual look around um, UK Fight Club is, is a network um, and it can be asked but not tasked so if you have a question you can pose it if you have uh, a particular scenario or something you'd like to investigate um, there's a group of people who might be able to assist and answer that you can't tell us to do it but come on in see who's around uh, and pose your question, and and almost guarantee you'll get an answer, which will be um, which will be of use, uh, potentially stimulating. But yeah, a network that can be asked but not tasked.
Yeah, no, that's um, that, that's a good philosophy. And uh, if you didn't know it, we're going to informally add you to our own network here, and I hope you you <laughs> add us uh, to yours because we have we've developed sort of our own network of you know basically just volunteers, but doing the same thing, trying to you know spread the you know spread the gospel of wargaming, if you will, and how it can be used as a tool. You know, especially to your point about the developing those mental habit patterns for you know better decision making and and uh, you know, analysis. It was something the colonel had mentioned, and it, and it's you know, it's one of the bullet points we hit too, right? You know, the only way you get better at making decisions is developing a habit pattern, making decisions, and that's what Warium can help you do because it all it is is a series of decisions that uh, you store in your memory for future use. Um, so I, I do want to get into uh, the game itself. If you could maybe describe, you know, who who decided to get, to go ahead and create your own game. Um, what the uh, what the process was, uh, what the reception's been for for those who played it. So we're talking take that hill. Yes, specifically. Yeah. Okay. So uh, full disclosure, it, the the game concept is Professor Sabin's. Um, so it's in his book, um, okay. Simulating War. Um, but but based on um, as is often the case, uh, War Games produced at the time that he was writing the book, uh, and and his own. Uh, historical experience of war games, it was quite bland and written in a way that uh, to a military user didn't really make any sense. It was written for a war gamer by a war gamer. Mm. Um, but the concept was simple. Um, it used a, a D6, it had a couple of hexes, it had two state counters, so side A, side B. So I thought that would make a great introductory war game. And effectively, all I did was add Chrome, uh, digitized, uh, digitized it into a color map. Um, made the rules read a bit more like a, a military user would understand them. Um, I added some additional rules, having playtested that and checked with the, with the author. So the game has a bit more longevity. Uh, once you've played it a couple of times, the original, you're effectively uh, a bit like tic-tac-toe. You're done. You, you know how it works and, and you just put it to one side. So I wanted the ability for the player to add uh, additional capabilities on, on blue side or defences on red side or environmental conditions such as night. Um, or the use of smoke or advanced morale um, based off a tactical psychology lecture that we, we watched. Uh, so that means the game has increased uh, replayability. Um, you can also play head-to-head, two-player, uh, and there's an instructor's element where you can run it in a series of uh, runs to illustrate a couple of tactical points about fire movement and, and leadership. Uh, and the key thing to stress is the game is not accurate to real life, but in the inaccuracies are discussion points um, so the, the the sort of era that Phil Sabin was writing on, the tactical radio system was was quite a new thing. So leadership had to be exercised almost face to face and in proximate to from superior to subordinate. You could argue that is no longer the case, and that's a useful discussion point um, as to when people feel happy doing things like assaults being remotely launched versus being physically launched by their by their leader. Um, so we, it's an important part of war games to know that the abstraction and aggregation leave areas which you've consciously decided not to emulate or simulate mm -hmm. to get simplicity in. Um, otherwise you end up with an example of ODRS where you're simulating a lot which is great but therefore the time it takes to learn and to execute increases um, by, uh, by degree. Yeah, I mean that's the, that's the constant tension of wargaming, you know, is playability versus realism and um, you, uh, I, I, going back to that Marine Corps attack war game I think in, in part of our research we found that Part of why it kind of went away and wound up on the shelf was it kept trying to make it more realistic, which made it less able for people to break it out and actually use it. So 
the the physical component is also key. We went to, uh, sad to say, we had to get it made in China for the for the economical cost reasons. There just isn't a, a board game producer in the UK who, who could do it. Um, the traditional army model would be put it online, let people download it, print it. And I did a bit of work to show how much of a cost that was for the uh, average um, wage of a, of a service person to put it together mm-hmm. over time. And it was just, it was about 10 times the cost of getting it from, from China in bulk. Uh, and being able to physically hand it to someone and say, this is a game, go play it. And the, the natural human desire to touch, feel, uh, flip counters over and have that hands-on was, was really important. Um, it is also on Tabletop Simulator, um, someone in Fight Club had made it a browser game that could run on your mobile phone into a, into a beta, um, which was great um, because our soldiers are always on their phones. But we did want the the physical, put it on the desk. It's you know it's three dimensional, two dimensional um, layout, and you know go through the acts of rolling the dice. One of the big stigmas of wargaming is dice rolling because people don't want to do it. This forces you to roll the dice. If you take that away and and give in to the stigma, and you either have um, it done on your on your phone or an umpire doing it, and you don't have to worry about it. You, you're just for that. You're just giving up at the first hurdle. You know, it's a, it's a bit like sort of giving up on PT uh, because a certain element is hard. You know, you've got to fall, you've got to push through the pain um, because as as Tim's war game shows, there's many more types of dice out there mm-hmm. than just the humble D six. Um, so you need to get used to that chance, risk and gain, and understand what, what what it is when you're rolling. You're not you're not just gambling. There's a series of outcomes based on modifiers which are linked to military logic or judgment. Yeah, and I think uh, you could develop the that percentage chart for the um, for OWS yes. to sort of illustrate that. Yeah, actually, you, you want to talk about that? Yes, yeah, so, so we'll do. So, um, so prior to joining the military, I worked for an investment bank. I worked for J.P. Morgan, U.S. U.S. Bank, and uh, <laughs> and the mathematical modelling uh, that I was exposed to um, e- even then was fairly sophisticated, um, and it dealt with risk. It dealt with risk and return. So when you come into uh, our environment where you're looking at risk and you're looking at future events. Um, I, I always joke that 11 out of 10 people are enumerate. They just don't understand how risk works, how it aggregates. So um, with the OWS, uh, we, we um, took the variety of dice rolls. And if you look at OWS, just the combat, once you've figured out your, uh, your relative strengths, you've still got four variables, which is the, the type of dice, which is the strength of the attack, the type of defense, uh, how many dice you're rolling, uh, and what uh, terrain your, your units are in. Uh, and we stripped that down to illustrate how rolling three dice requiring one hit on those, um, you're actually fairly likely to, to get a success, even if you're looking at higher end. But even if you need kind of an average dice roll, you roll three, you're fairly unlikely to get all three hits in. And we just t- tabulated that out to illustrate um, people's over-optimism when they're looking at their chances of success. Uh, we only went to three dice um, because it starts to get mathematically quite complex. Mm-hmm. But we've got these charts that just show, yeah, if you if you need one hit out of three, you're fairly likely to. And if you're looking at you know a, a fairly easy roll, you're almost certain to. Uh, if you're banking on, I'll get three out of three, um, you're almost certainly being over-optimistic. And we just illustrated that with, uh, with some tables and charts. Uh, which we can then use also to just to talk through with the command group about what's your risk appetite, sir? Because what you're saying and, and what you're acting actually there's a disconnect because what's in your head does not match up with the numbers. Um, it's just another tool to illustrate when you're dealing with the future. Um, people tend to have that over optimism bias. Yeah. Well, I think whether it's you know the what is the half dozen different types of dice for OWS or a D6 for take that hill. You know, I think the 
it's it's been part of the collective, you know, trying to proselytize wargaming is that it's not a gamble. It's it's a it's a risk metric, and you can actually impact that to improve or or decrease your odds of success or failure. And you have some agency over that. And then you know the element of randomness, like that's just that's combat, that's war, right? Stuff happens. That you you know Ukraine managing to sink a you know a Russian flagship without having a navy, you know, to contest it with. Sometimes that stuff just happens in war. Um, war is very contingent. Um, so in, inside the arc, what's the response been to standing up this fight club? Has there been, uh, been received enthusiastically as a, as a good opportunity to expand the, yeah, ab- absolutely. Here? Those that, um, have been made, made aware to this point essentially have been very, very interested. And, um, anytime I, I bump into them, um, be it in the hallway or the office or, or asking, Hey, when, when are we going to get together? And so that has in the near, very near future that we're going to formalize the, the schedule for that um, to include the endorsement of the, the commander of the arc as well. Okay. So uh, I've kind of got to the, uh, the end of my list of questions here and uh, I don't want to keep you gentlemen, you know, cause I know we're getting into, you know, dinner time, family time, but um, any other final points you'd like to share? I just say one, I think you, you mentioned earlier about how maybe can people get involved and obviously we would love yes. for people to get involved within our community. Um, so we have our, our website, um, which I believe is ukfightclub.co.uk. Um, but there's also now, and, and coming soon, is obviously US Fight Club. And um, as our as a UK partners, um, we're really supportive of that initiative. It, it is already there in existence and there is a website, which I, I, I hope you maybe we can link in the bottom of the, the podcast. I don't know off the, the URL off the top of my head. One thing I would say is we're looking to support our US partners with, um, we've actually, as the UK Fight Club, are giving 50 Combat Mission Professional Edition licenses to the US Fight Club. Um, and we've also created a um, basically bespoke campaign of learning for them, um, which is going to be called Operation Knockout. And it's based on the UK one, which is Op uh, Balaclava, um, but it's two CR, so um, a striker brigade combat team deployed into a fictional country uh, called Puccini, um, which those are familiar with the date scenario, maybe rather relevant at the minute, um, but they'll essentially be given out today, uh, not today, sorry, given out in a week's time and we'll be hopefully be able to, to support the, our partners with it. And what we want to see is, you know, more gaming. Um, UK Fight Club started probably within the British Army, but it's now wider than that. It's joined, obviously, the analytical communities involved. We want Air Force and Navy involved and we want for all of our allies and partners to be involved as well. So uh, really look forward to hopefully hearing some of the listeners and getting involved with both US and UK Fight Club and all, us all playing some games together soon. Yeah, and you know, now that we can visit back and forth to each other's countries, there's an increasing opportunity for that. And we, I'll make sure I put in all the URLs and different social media links and stuff into the episode when we post it. Gentlemen, any final comments? Yeah, join the network. You're already part of it if you're listening, but you're a passive part. So um, sign up and, uh, and come and say hello. Nothing to lose. It's a zero investment and it's uh, in terms of time and effort. So yeah, come join Fight Club. All right, great. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much for taking some time out at the end of the day here to talk to us and just tell the listeners more about, you know, both what the ARC is doing over here for NATO as well as what the UK Flight Club is doing because two good areas of interest um, that we uh, were always looking to learn more about. So thank you again very much. Thanks for having you. Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected.